Rumpole and the Right to Privacy by John Mortimer. With Timothy West as Horace Rumpole and Prunella Scales as his wife, Hilda. Please, Rumpole, don't whistle at breakfast. Oh, sorry, Hilda. I just feel unexpectedly cheerful. It must be the smell of the toast. I'm trying to read my newspaper. Oh, don't let me stop you. Full of people's private lives. It usually is. There's no one, Rumpel, to be allowed to lead a private life anymore. I told them on my bridge club, they just won't leave anyone alone. Everything has to get into the papers. You mean we're to expect headlines in the tabloids? Hilda Rumpel bids four hearts full story in the sun? I, I know you like to make a joke of everything. But things are getting serious when I'm actually rung up by a journalist. He wanted to know all about you, Rumpel. Really? What did he want to know? All about the life of a well-known criminal barrister. <laughs> what you did in your spare time, for instance. Did you tell him that I spent my evening enjoying recreational drugs in the company of lap dancers? Certainly not. I said it was absolutely no business of his and you didn't want anything written about you in the papers. You don't, do you, Rumpel? Didn't I? I had, I'm afraid, felt a little thrill of pleasure as she who must uttered the words well-known criminal barrister. It was not, of course, entirely unexpected, since several recent successful cases, my fame had spread far beyond equity court and the old Bailey, so I would not have objected forcefully to a well-written profile in some respectable broadsheet headlined The Great Defender, no doubt with a photograph or mercifully drawn caricature, I could imagine the frisson of jealousy at the next chamber's meeting, tinged with gratitude for what I'd done for the image of the old Bailey hack. Rumpole, you don't want anything written about you in the papers, do you? Hmm? Well, it would de rather depend on how it was done. It wouldn't depend on that at all, Rumpole. There are no circumstances in which I'd allow journalists into our mansion flat to sneer at our furniture, make fun of our knick-knacks. Privacy is sacred, Rumpole. I'm sure you agree. Up to a point is what I might have said. But to save time and for the avoidance of controversy, I kept it to... You're quite right, Hilda. Of course I'm right. I told this journalist, aren't there enough wars and natural disasters without you having to come worrying us for something to put in your paper? So, not being a war or natural disaster... I reconciled myself to the status of a member of the newspaper-buying public who never gets profiled or caricatured or mentioned unless he becomes involved in a salacious scandal or features as the victim of a violent crime. These thoughts were uppermost in my mind at that moment, not only because of what Hilda told me, but because I'd become involved in a case about the denial of human rights and the protection of the privacy of a very rich man indeed. You do invasion of privacy cases, don't you, Mr. Rumpole? Invasion of privacy? Yes, of course. It's my daily bread, if you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> I was speaking nice with my client, Mr. Rankin, <laughs> editor of a local paper, The Chivering Argus. 
He was a small, bird-like man, bright eyes and a head cocked to one side, who sat up very straight with his arms folded, as though he'd just fluttered down and alighted on the edge of the chair opposite. Well, now, whose privacy have you been invading? Sir Mike Smedley. You'll know about him, of course. <laughs> no, I'm afraid I've never heard of the fellow. Oh, he's born of a poor family in Birmingham, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, started in second-hand cars. Then he decided more people needed sleep than needed cars. So he started Smedley's Slumberwell Beds. He promised nights of pure delight. He made a fortune. So he moved out of Birmingham and bought a country house in Chivering. I understand from your solicitor that you never really got on with him, did you, Mr. Rankin? He wanted to buy our little local paper, oh. and he got quite angry when I refused to sell. He tried to bribe me with more money and threatened to close us down. Uh, I think I remember him now. Wasn't he the fellow who said schools should teach life skills and not Shakespeare? <laughs> Sounds to me like someone ought to have his privacy invaded. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Rumpole. That's just the view we took. Which part of his privacy did you invade, exactly? Oh, a photograph of Sir Mike in a fairly compromising position appeared in the Argus, Mr. Rumpole. They're asking for huge damages, enough to bankrupt the paper. And your motive for publishing the offending photograph? We wanted to embarrass him. I'll freely admit that. Our way of getting our own back so our readers could have a laugh at Sir High and Mighty Mike, <laughs> the local celebrity who thinks everything's for sale. <laughs> You're saying you published the photograph just to get a laugh? Yes, but that, I mean, with a brassy year on his head. I mean, can you imagine what the chap at the stock exchange would say? Mm, I can. <laughs> yes, I was I, beginning to get the message. The editor was going to prove a highly unsatisfactory witness. His sense of humour seemed to have come out of some long-defunct boy's comic. Yeah, I mean, just a jolly jape, you see, Mr. Rumpole. And then bish-bash-bosh, we're landed with this writ. <laughs> you say your nephew took the photograph? Young Jim. He'd gone to the Caribbean in his gap year after school. And Sir Mike had a holiday home in St. Lucia. Well, of course, I'd have expected nothing less. Jim was working in the sugar and spice bar when the great big cheese himself took the whole place over for a party with his chums. A private party. Mm -hmm. You do realise he'd made the management sign a contract. No photographs, no press, no divulging of the guest list. Well... Yes, they had agreed to complete confidentiality. Of course, no one realised Jim knew all about Sir Mike. Jim was interested in taking pictures of wildlife on the island, so he had his camera with him. Mm. <laughs> so he was all prepared to photograph the wildlife in the sugar and spice bar. <laughs> he thought it was a great wheeze, and he managed it very cleverly. Of course, it was quite late, and the party had been going on some time, and <laughs> they'd all had a skinful. <laughs> and young Jim, apart from his talent for snapping local fauna... Did he know that the management had signed a contract, no photographs allowed? Oh, he knew that. But he did it as a prank. <laughs> he knew how much his picture would delight his old uncle. And as a prank, his old uncle published this picture in the paper. You've got it, Mr. Rumpole. <laughs> how could I resist the temptation? <laughs> I really don't know. But if you could have, you might have saved yourself an action for breach of confidentiality, invasion of privacy, and all the trimmings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But have a look at the photograph. I mean, look, here he is. Look, I mean, it's totally unsuspecting. Look at... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can see. you imagine all these chaps in the financial... Mr. Rankin handed me the photograph. <laughs> Sir Michael Smedley, the great business tycoon, was a large, beefy-looking individual with his hair brushed forward as though surrounding a monk's tonsure. 
He was grinning happily and strutting in some sort of celebratory dance, clearly enjoying his private party. His dancing partner, whom I took to be a darkly beautiful local girl, was dancing with much finger-snapping and flashing of white teeth. She was naked from the waist up, and her sizable brazier, in that golden moment immortalized by young Jim's camera, was draped about Sir Michael Smedley's ears. <laughs> it's a good joke, you have to admit, Mr. Rumpel. Perhaps, but not the sort of joke your average tycoon wants his friends and neighbours to laugh at over their breakfast table. The bird-like editor had not long gone, when my room in chambers was visited by Claude Erskine Brown. Hopeless advocate and great opera lover. Married to Philida, once my pupil and the Porsche of our chambers, now a scarlet and ermine high court judge. He came alone and palely loitering, and, as ever, in some sort of trouble of an amorous nature. Rumpel, hmm? I hear you're doing an invasion of privacy case. Uh, invasion of privacy? Breach of confidence? Outrageous infringement of human rights? Yes, Claude. That's the sort of practice I carry on these days. I've left the petty larcenies and the public bar affrays to old Bailey hacks like you. Yes, but in fact, I'm very much afraid that my confidence is about to be seriously invaded. Oh, then you come to the right chap. Take a seat. Tell me who's invaded you. Uh, Mercy Granderson. Who's Mercy Granderson? Rumpel, I can't believe it. You don't know who Mercy Granderson is? Uh, afraid not. Don't you watch Shopping Mal on the telly? Never. She's the one who owns the boutique, hmm? whose marriage with Barry from the sock shop broke up and who's now having a terrible time with Bertrand from the Bienvenue Bistro. Oh. Well, it's enormously interesting, Claude, but how does any of that threaten your privacy? Shopping Mal doesn't, but Mercy Grandison does. An actress? And author. That's the terrible thing, Rumpo. She's got a book coming out next month. It's been advertised in the Telegraph. A history of shopping? Unfortunately not. It's her life story. A wandering star. How Mercy Granison, born Mary Grimes, fourth daughter of a Wisbeach plumber, rose to become queen of the soaps. In this touching memoir, Mercy reveals the heartbreaks behind the glitter of show business. So what are you worrying about? She reveals the heartbreaks, Rumpel. What's that got to do with you? There was a pause during which a certain amount of wrestling for the soul of Erskine Brown seemed to be taking place. When the struggle was over, he allowed himself to speak. Oh, I, I'd better confess to you, Rumpel. Well, you probably should if you want my advice. It was years ago. I, I'd gone up to Grimsby to do a lengthy fraud. Well, that's forgivable. And one evening, I went to the theatre. The local rep. I went to see Private Lives by Noel Card. A young girl in a white dress came out on a moonlit balcony... In Grimsby? No, the south of France. Oh. I was totally knocked out, Rumpel. Stunned, I suppose. I made a complete fool of myself. I, I waited for her at the stage door. We went out for supper every night for the rest of the week. In the end, I asked her back to the hotel. <laughs> oh, dear, dear Claude. You know, <laughs> you really are. Rather sweet. I'm telling you all this because I need your help desperately. 
She told me she thought I was rather sweet. There's no accounting for taste, is what I might have said, but I didn't. Instead, I asked, so what happened exactly? It happened. It? Yes, it. I have to tell you, Rumpel, it was one of the most important things in my life. The next morning we said goodbye on Grimsby Station, but I still think about it. When there's nothing in court and Phil is away on circuit or when life seems completely uneventful, I think about her, Rumpole. I get a great deal of quiet pleasure from thinking about Mercy. Darling Claude, I'll never, never forget you. And I'm very sure you'll do the same. I take it you met her from time to time after your night of passion? Never again, Rumpole, not ever. So it was a last goodbye? I'll never forget it. On Grimsby Station. You see, I just got married to Philly. It was a long time ago, of course, before we had the children. And your wife, the learned judge, knows nothing about it. Nothing, Rumpole. She's going to find out when Mercy's book is serialised in the Daily Post, which Philly demolishes every morning at breakfast. And you don't think she'll be best pleased? Oh, she'll bring it up every time we have an argument. She'll tell me she can never trust me again. She'll never let me forget it. Well, naturally, when you parted on Grimsby Station... Yes, yes, tell me. Give me your opinion. You obviously asked Mercy to sign a solemn undertaking, promising never verbally or in writing, or by any form of technical communication which might be invented in the future, to divulge to anyone the events which had occurred between you and the soap star in that Grimsby Hotel. Well, I, am. Um, uh... Well, no doubt you had such a document prepared. Did you get her to sign it in front of witnesses? No, don't, don't be ridiculous, Rumpel. Of course I didn't. Well, then I'm afraid your legal position is distinctly dicey. <sighs> Not to put too fine a point on it, Claude, I would say you were up shit creek and deprived of a paddle. No case of breach of confidence. Look here. Are you sure she's written about it? Have you read it? Well, it's not out yet, I told you. But of course she's written about Grimsby. It was one of the greatest moments of our lives. Do you think I'd be right to tell Philly? Should I warn her? As we lawyers say, don't jump before you get to the style. The world is full of nervous husbands leaping about in level fields, thinking that they've got to clear obstructions which aren't actually there. Oh, dear. I suppose it might be possible... To keep the story in question out of Dame Phillida's paper? Oh, Rumpole. Would you do that for me? As my legal adviser, would you try? They'll listen to you now you're briefed in the great Sir Mike's privacy case. Mm -hmm. Who steals my purse steals trash. Do something, nothing. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. The words of Iago had brought me to the door of Pomeroy's, and as I stepped up to it, there was a small flash of light in the surrounding dampness, and I saw a girl with red hair wearing a blue anorak point a camera in my direction. I moved rapidly towards my first glass of Chateau Thames Embankment and thought no more about it. I had taken my bottle of just tolerable claret to a table in the corner of Pomeroy's when I saw Liz Probert 
downing a vodka in the company of Mervyn Lockwood, QC, a tall, languid human rights barrister who refused on principle to appear for landlords, police officers and employers. He gave Liz a light kiss on the forehead and glided off. When he'd gone, Liz joined me with a heavy sigh. Isn't Mervyn elegant? Isn't he a wonderful barrister? Well, if that's your idea of being a wonderful barrister. He's not an old taxi cab like me, more like a hired car only available to travel on certain routes for a certain class of person. Oh, do you think so? Do you have any secrets you want to keep hidden, Liz? Why do you say that? Well, don't worry, most people have one way or another. You've found out. Found out what? You promise you won't tell Mervyn? Well, uh, of course not, if you don't want me to. It's just that... Well, I had these old Labour parents. They went on ban-the-bomb marches. They spent nights outside the South African embassy singing We Shall Overcome. Mm -hmm. It's natural to revolt when you're young. You must have felt that too, Rumpole. Well, I think I felt like revolting all my life. Well, there you are, then, you see. But mine was a one-off, an act of immature defiance. I'm ashamed of it. I really am. What is it you're ashamed of? Remind me. I joined the Conservative Association. Oh, dear. It was only for a term. Then I came to my senses. Oh, Rumpole, give me your solemn promise. You won't tell Mervyn. Uh, I promise solemnly. Thank you, Rumpole. <laughs> Liz planted a kiss, which landed slightly to the left of my nose. Looking up from this experience... I saw the red-haired girl in the anorak standing at the bar and looking across at us with considerable interest. Next morning I had a call which took me to the chambers of Hugo Winterton, leading counsel for Sir Michael Smedley and the appointed protector of his privacy. Bit of a change for you, isn't it, Rumpole? Civilised litigation in the law courts? After the rough and tumble of the old Bailey? If you call it civilised, hopping about with some girl's brazier around your ear? He was relaxing, Rumpole. I expect you relax when you're on holiday, don't you? Not by prancing around in my wife Hilda's underwear. Now, look here, Rumpole. No need for a prolonged fight about this, now, is there? I'm sure we could find a fairly painless way out between us. What was wrong with Hugo Winterton was that there was nothing wrong with him. He was good-looking, middle-aged, a QC who lived a life of impeccable good taste. He slid towards me a mother-of-pearl box containing small cigars. Oh. Okay. Please, do light up. I've absolutely no objection in the world to smoking. Mm -hmm. Was I being led into some ambush? Probably. However, I couldn't resist the temptation, and I sent a small smoke ring hovering over Hugo Winterton's elegant head. Naturally, Mike was very upset when that little local paper published the picture. All right, he was making a bit of a fool of himself. <laughs> We've all got to let our hair down sometimes. What he doesn't want is to have the picture popping up in every blessed newspaper. So... He's got to appear to win this case. Appear to? Afraid so. And win so convincingly 
it's going to scare off all the other members of our sick, starved, scandal-loving press. So there's got to be an order for a large amount of damages. Mm. How large? Well, we were thinking in terms of oh, half a million, uh, uh, just as a warning to others. Well, I'd better be going. Thanks for the cheroot. No, no, wait a minute. Just between ourselves. I believe I could persuade Mike not to enforce the order. I doubt if either the editor or his paper have got the money. Your client will only pay his costs. But, of course, Mike would want some permanent editorial control over the Argus. You mean he wants to take it over? Just to ensure it doesn't make any more unprovoked attacks on him. And that it will advertise his beds. <laughs> that might be part of it, of course. And this order for half a million damages? That would stay in the background. To be enforced at any time if my client doesn't give Sir Mike exactly what he wants. Well, it's a possibility, of course. We'd hope it wouldn't come to that. Well, I'll put it to the editor, but he's a pretty tough sort of character. I'm not sure he'd agree to being in Sir Mike's pocket for the indefinite future. Do your best with him, my dear old fellow. We don't want to have to waste our time preparing for a fight, do we? I'm not too worried about that. Perhaps I should have revealed to him that I was on my way to an interview which would be entitled, when it was published, Rumpole the Great Defender. About a week before, to my surprise, and I have to say my delight, I had been rung up by a Gervais Johnson for the Daily Fortress, who wanted to write an article on Rumpole the Great Defender. Better still, the interview was to take place in the expensive Myrtle restaurant, where Mr. Johnson's little tape recorder was found not to work. Ah, right. Uh, one, two, three, testing. Oh, no good. We'll have to go back to the old pencil and notebook. Uh, now, uh, I think what our readers will be interested in, Mr. Rumpole, is how a busy barrister unwinds. Hmm? You're living on your nerves, aren't you? Will you give us an insight into your private life? Certainly. Well, that's very generous of you. I know some people don't like talking about that sort of thing. Oh, I don't mind at all. Oh, good for you. Now, carry on, Mr. Rumpole. When the day's work is done... And you feel the need to relax completely? Exactly. I get myself down to Pomeroy's wine bar and put away, let's say, half a bottle of Pomeroy's very ordinary red. You're a lucky man, Mr. Rumpole. You think so? Indeed. The story is you were seen being kissed by a particularly attractive young lady in that particular wine bar. How do you know that? Oh, we've been making a few inquiries. We had a photographer out after you. Material for the article. The young lady in question was my colleague. I'd given her a piece of helpful advice for which she was grateful. I'm sure she was. I suppose you're not going to tell me how you spent the rest of the evening? Certainly. I went back to my flat in the Gloucester Road. I had supper with my wife in the kitchen. A chop, I think. And baked jam roll. We watched the ten o'clock news and went to bed early. That is my private life. There is your story. Make what you like of it. I'm afraid, my dear Mr. Rumpole, it seems we'll be able to make very little of it. I'm not Sir Mike Smedley. I don't need to sue anyone for writing about how I spend my evenings. Ah, yes, Sir Michael. 
You're going to have a tough time cross-examining him. Mm. I don't know. Perhaps I'll think of something. He must have a weak spot, a chink in his armour. Everyone's tried to find one. Apparently he's as clean as a whistle. The tabloids tried to pin something on him when he landed that contract for NHS bed. Oh, yes, there was a suggestion he'd done a deal with Lord Hindle, wasn't there, the uh. health minister, in return for a huge secret subsidy to party coffers. Mm. Wasn't that the story? Yes, the story collapsed before it hit the presses. Sir Michael didn't even have to sue for damages. He told me all about it when I interviewed him. The truth was, he said, he'd never even met Lord Hindle. Never even been in the same room with him, let alone spoken to him. And, of course, Sir Michael's not the sort fraternised with politicians. <laughs> no more than any other wealthy, successful businessman, I should think, right. Mr. Rumpel. <laughs> Claude Erskine Brown came into my room. Just as I was trying, with diminishing success to think of a reasonable defence in the case of Smedley versus the Chivering Arcus. Thank you for your advice, Rumpo. Huh? I'm so glad I didn't take it. Which advice was that, Erskine You asked me not to tell Philly about Mercy the actress. You said I shouldn't jump before I got to the style. Well, I jumped, Rumpo. I leapt high up in the air, and it's been a huge success. She doesn't mind at all. You told her about Grimsby? I did. And she said she'd read Mercy's book with interest. She was truly glad I'd had such a romantic past. Quite frankly, she said, before this, she'd never have believed me capable of a great passion. Oh, well, well that's fine, then. Yes. Now, by the way, Phyllis trying that case of yours. Oh. She says she thinks it's absolutely terrible that your newspaper chap should have published pictures of Sir Michael Smedley at a private party. She's a great admirer of Sir Michael's achievement as a self-made man. She tells me... She's going to give you a rough ride. Thank you for those words of warning, Erskine Brown. Most kind. Forewarned is forearmed, Rumpel. I had, of course, told Rankin, the editor, about Hugo Winterton's offer. I explained that the order for heavy damages wouldn't be enforced, provided that he didn't do anything else to annoy the great Sir Michael Smedley, and asked what our answer should be. Tell him, Mr. Rumpole, to save his breath to cool his porridge. All right, then. We go on. And on we went, into the law courts in the Strand. Mrs. Justice Erskine Brown was trying the case alone and without a jury. I do wish I could have thought of a reasonable defence. However, there I was, standing up in the unfamiliar atmosphere of Queen's Bench Court Number 4. Beside me, Ms Liz Probert, who was acting as my junior, was ready with her notebook, expectantly waiting for me to lure the witness into a dangerous admission. Sir Michael, <clears throat> are you thoroughly ashamed of what you did that evening at the Sugar and Spice Bar in St Lucia? No, Mr Rumpal, I'm not at all ashamed. You were capering around with a topless dancer wearing her brazier as earmuffs. That is what the picture shows, yes. And you're not in the least ashamed of having done that? It was all good, clean fun. It was in the spirit of the party. Was it? Were many of your guests wearing articles of underwear on their heads? Not that I noticed. <laughs> Sir Michael's answer, not my question, got a smile from the judge and a ripple of laughter from his legal teeth. If they had been, you'd have seen nothing wrong with it. Harmless fun, Mr. Rumpole. 
I think Sir Michael has already made that clear, Mr. Rumpole. Yes, my lady, but he hasn't told us this. If it was all just clean fun and nothing to be ashamed of, what's wrong with everyone who happens to read the chivering Argus enjoying the photograph? It was my private party. Well, even if it was, why on earth have you trundled out this great legal sledgehammer to crack this perfectly harmless little photograph? Some people, Mr. <clears throat> Rumpole, value their privacy. I suppose you'll be grateful to accept the answer her ladyship has offered you. I do value my privacy, yes. Well, let's see how much you really value it. You've given many interviews to various papers with a great deal of information about yourself. When it was appropriate. You found it appropriate when you had to deal with intimate details of your private life, didn't you? Mr. Rumpel, is that a relevant question? If your ladyship will listen patiently, the relevance will become obvious. Very well, Mr. Rumpel. You may proceed. Thank you. When your first marriage ended, did you give an interview to the Daily Post, printed under the headline, Heartbreak When I Broke Up With Danielle? No, I didn't write the headline, Mr. Rumpel. <laughs> no, I know you didn't, but you did say this. Sexually, I believe Danielle and I were perfectly suited. She left because she found the lifestyle of the lead singer of a rock band suited her tastes more than the quiet and secure home life I had provided. <clears throat> Did you say that for publication in a tabloid with a huge circulation? I may have said something like it. Something very like it. And then we get how I found true happiness with Susan. <coughs> Susan was your second wife. She was, yes. Sadly, four or five years later, we get another interview... Money and worldly success are no compensation for a broken heart. Did you give that interview? I think so, yes. Well, I can only wish you better luck third time round. <laughs> I don't see what my marriages have to do with this case. I have to say, Mr. Rumpole, neither do I. Then let me enlighten both you and her ladyship. You are trying to get enormous damages, a huge sum of money. Mr. Rumpole, the amount of damages will be for me to decide. Perhaps tomorrow morning you'll make clear to us just what your defence to the charge of invasion of privacy is. <coughs> Very well, then. 10.30 tomorrow. Please be upstanding. Liz, just remind me... What's a defence to a charge of invasion of privacy? Usually the public interest. Public interest? How can I get some of that? When I got home to the mansion flat, the television was on and a small gnome-like man with close-cut hair and the shadow of a beard was being interviewed. He had my full attention when I heard his name. Lord Hindle, do you believe in party funding through taxation? It was Lord Hindle, the one-time party chairman, and now Minister of Health. I don't think that's what the public wants. We have our supporters giving anything from half a million pounds, because they're people committed to us. 
Turn him off, Rumpole. I'm trying to write to Dodo McIntosh, and he's driving me mad. Uh, She who must often used me as her remote control. I duly turned off the sound. Deprived of his voice, his lordship was only a face. But a face I was sure I'd seen somewhere else quite recently. I ran through a long gallery of faces, many of villains, some of respectable citizens, before I suddenly remembered. So I dusted off the old magnifying glass we kept in the drawer of the writing desk and carried out some further search. Then I dialed the home number of Gervais Johnson. Who on earth are you trying to telephone, Rumpo? Gervais Johnson, the journalist who wrote my profile for The Fortress. They never used that profile, did they, Rumpo? I suppose you're just not really in the public interest, are you? Oh, hello, it's Rumpole. Oh, hello, Mr. Rumpole. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry they never used that profile of yours well, for the fortune. No, no, never mind about my private life. My private life's not the point at the moment. It's the private lives of other people. Now, are you at home? Certainly am. Good. I'll come round and see you. I need your help desperately, old darling, and I'm afraid it's going to take some time. Right you are, Mr. Rumpole. It did. But I have to say that Gervais, once the situation was explained to him, joined me with enthusiasm. We travelled together to the fortress offices in Canary Wharf, searched files, got help from the picture desk, and ate bacon and eggs in the all-night canteen. I was lucky to have found in Gervais an old-fashioned journalist, one who was genuinely excited by the idea of discovering the truth. Next morning, I was in the kind of cheerful frame of mind which often prompts me to sing old music hall songs at breakfast. I hadn't been married for a month or so, when underneath her thumb went Jim. Isn't it a pity that the likes of her should marry with the likes of him? Quiet, Trump. What on earth are you singing for? I'm singing because I think I might be in the public interest at last. Mr. Rumpel, I hope you'll deal with the issue of breach of confidence today. I certainly will, my lady. Sir Michael, can you help me? Your holiday in St. Lucia was a year ago last January. That's right. No doubt you went there to get a glimpse of the sun. Well, we didn't expect to get much of it over here in January, so yes, Mr. Rumpel. Indeed. And in the following month, your firm won the contract to supply a massive quantity of new beds to national health hospitals. We did indeed. And production is going very well. In fact, I'm delighted to say we're ahead of schedule. Oh, good. There were rumours going round that you got that contract because you gave a massive but unrecorded amount of money to government funds. There are always those sorts of rumours when there's a big contract. We need evidence, not mere rumours, Mr. Rumpole. That is exactly what I mean to provide, Your Ladyship. Sir Michael, it was suggested that you fix the deal up with Lord Hindle, party treasurer and trusted political adviser to the government. I've already stated that there's not a word of truth in that suggestion. Not a word of truth. You went further than that, didn't you? You stated that you'd never even met Lord Hindle. I may have said something like that. Well, you said exactly that, didn't you? For the first time, the witness looked uncomfortable. He hesitated, 
looked for help to Hugo Winterton, who was staring with great interest at the ceiling. I can't be expected to uh, remember everything I said a year ago. Well, then, let me help you. Do you remember giving an interview to Gervais Johnson for a profile in the Daily Fortress? Yes, I remember that. Well, then perhaps you'll listen to what you said on that occasion. I held Gervais's unreliable instrument in my hand, its red light glowing. In it was the tape he had found of the Smedley interview. I pressed a button. The machine was silent. <laughs> Shake it, whispered Gervais, who was sitting behind me. I did. Still silent. He did then, but not too hard. I gave the antique device a brisk slap, and it spoke out at last to the court. We heard Gervaise's question. Well, that's all very well, but it's being suggested you did a deal with Lord Hindle and made a big contribution to the party. No, I've never met Lord Hindle or spoken to him. I had no connection with him whatever before the contract. That's your voice? Seems to be. And it's your voice telling a thumping lie? <clears throat> of course it's not a lie. Is that your answer? I've already told you that. Very well. Let's come, if we can, to the night of the party at the Sugar and Spice Bar. It was my private party. Exactly. For your friends. For people I'd invited, yes. Mm. Just take another look at the photograph, will you, Sir Michael? I take it that was your table. You're dancing near it with your headdress, and there's an empty seat. That was my table, yes. Mm. Just have a look at the other people at your table. Difficult to see in the shadows. Just try it. Not too difficult, is it? Can you make out a small man at the table, a man with close-cut hair and the dark shadow of a beard? You mean next to the tall blonde lady, Mr. Rumpo? Philida had got out her magnifying glass and was studying the photograph yes. with interest. That's the one. Your ladyship has it. Not sure who that is. Well, then, let me help you. We hadn't wasted our time in the picture department of the fortress... Gervais had got them to blow up the photo of Lord Hindle among the group watching Sir Michael's dance of joy with the brazier. It's like him, I agree. It is him, I'm afraid you've got to agree. So, now we know what this case is all about. You don't care who sees you dancing about festooned with underwear, but you didn't want anyone to see that you're a liar who met the party treasurer and no doubt paid him your money and got your contract. That's what we're all here for, isn't it? We're going through this legal farce to protect another bit of political sleaze. Isn't that the truth of the matter? Dame Philida looked long and hard at the witness and then turned away from him as though she could no longer stand the sight of him. Mr. Rumpo, I take it you are alleging that it's in the public's interest that this photograph should be published to disclose what may have been an improper agreement... <clears throat> about a government contract. Your ladyship puts it so much more clearly than I could have done. And, I take it, you're asking for an adjournment so you can amend your pleadings to cover these new allegations? Uh, your ladyship is quite right. That's exactly what I'm asking for. Court adjourned. The adjournment turned out to be very short. Hugo Winterton approached me in the corridor. Rumpo, now look yeah. It is no good our going on with this. Right. You're only getting further and further up Ship Creek. I'm going to tell the judge that out of respect to an old established family newspaper, we're calling the whole thing off. 
And, of course, we'll have to pay your costs. That suits me very well. You tell Dame Phillida that. She's an admirer of Sir Michael Smedley's. She'll be sorry to see him go. Mm. Not so sorry, I think, after his performance this morning. Mm. I expect you'll be glad to return to the old Bailey, won't you? Away from this almighty sleaze, yes. It'll be nice to get back to a bit of ordinary, decent crime. Quite right. When I got back to my room... I found Claude Erskine Brown slumped in my client's chair. He spoke in a voice of doom. Oh, Claude, what's up? Sometimes I can't understand, Philida. Well, the learned judge is subject to sudden mood swings. So what's happened now? She's absolutely furious about Mercy Grandison's book. It's come out, you know. She sent her clerk out to buy a copy. She said she wanted to read about my great passion. And now she's cross about what Mercy wrote. No, she's cross about what Mercy didn't write. Well, go on, tell me, what didn't Mercy write? She wrote nothing about me, Rumpole. Nothing, Claude? Absolutely nothing. She dealt with her days at the Grimsby Rep in considerable detail, but there was no mention of my name even, and certainly not of the great experience, which has remained with me all my life. Well, it's... Possible, isn't it, that she was just being discreet? You haven't read The Wandering Star, Rumpole. There's absolutely nothing discreet about it. No. Philly thinks she left it out because it wasn't of the slightest importance to her. Your wife takes a harsh view. Harsh? She is without pity. This great affair you're so proud of, Claude, she said. You see? Your girlfriend's simply forgotten all about it. You should never have told her, Claude. I know, Rumpole. As we lawyers say, don't jump before you get to the style. The world is full of nervous husbands leaping about in level fields, thinking that they've got to clear obstructions which aren't actually there. Oh, dear. I jumped before I came to the style. Always an unwise thing to do. Don't worry, it'll pass. Dame Phillida can make mistakes with the best of us. She herself had a momentary misguided admiration for a crooked bedmaker, but that's all over now. She'll forget about Mercy. Just like Mercy has forgotten me. It's the private life, Claude. Just let it rest in peace. It's a great mistake to try to protect it. It always leads to trouble. be allowed to lead a private life anymore. Privacy is sacred, Rumpole. I'm sure you agree. Yeah, quite right, Hilda. Of course I'm right. Mm. Oh, pass the marmalade. <clears throat> In Rumpole and the Right to Privacy by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. Hilda Rumpole, Prunella Scales, Mr. Rankin, David Shaw Parker, and Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony. Liz Probert was Elaine Claxton, Hugo Winterton, Anton Rogers, Gervais Johnson, Stephen Critchlow, Sir Mike Smedley, Kim Durham, and Mrs. Justice Erskine Brown, Joanna David. Rumpole and the Right to Privacy was directed by Marilyn Imrie. It is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.